Thank you very much. It's good to be with you today again as we continue our studies in Nehemiah. And it'd be useful if you did keep uh, your Bible open or whatever means you have recorded uh, would be before you. Uh, I remember reading quite some time ago some comments by Dr. Campbell Morgan, who was one time minister of Westminster Chapel in London. And he analyzed what would be a normal or a typical day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suggested that that was made up of three parts or three aspects. First, there was communion with his heavenly father. Again and again, we're told in the scriptures, early in the day, he rose up and he prayed. Secondly, there was contact with people, which means that was his ministry to come and preach and to heal and to help those in need. And then the third element was conflict with his enemy, the adversary, the devil. Those three things, communion with his father, contact with people, and conflict with the, with the enemy. And I would suggest to you that that is true of every spiritual believer. Many of our days will be made up of that. And it's also true of any living, vital church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be communion with our God, their contact with people, and enter into conflict with the devil, or he will have conflict with us. That's the picture that's presented to us. And I think Nehemiah chapter 4 brings that out very clearly. Here were people who were intent, who were determined to see the walls of Jerusalem built, that God would receive his honor, and the people of God would be blessed. And immediately that happens, then we see uh, the conflict, which had already been intimated earlier, becoming a greater reality. If you, if you look at this particular chapter, you will see a contrast between chapter three and chapter four. The third chapter, we see uh, pictures, narrative of advance and advance and advance as the wall was being built. Here they were, they were working unitedly. They were working purposefully, enthusiastically, and that was achieving great things. And even in some of the most insalubrious places, there was work. Can you imagine those who worked on the dung gates? Can you imagine in your CV, I'm a worker in the dung gates? Or someone asked, what was your last job? I built the gates of the dung gate, but they did it. That's the wonderful thing as part of the work of God. Even those places, not so attractive, not so appealing, they had a mind and a heart to work to see those walls built. And this is what did happen. Now, what our Lord said, and it was really speaking a little bit in general terms or bigger terms about his own experience. Those, that wonderful statement which he made after the confession of Peter in Caesarea Philippi, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was a proclamation of their faith. That was signing out their convictions about the Lord Jesus. And in response to that, our Lord said, I will, on this confession, or the truth of this confession, or those who believe in that confession, I will build my church. And then he goes on to say, and the gates of hell will not overcome us. So there were two things that he said. He was assuring them of victory. He would build his church. But secondly, he said that victory would not be easy. There will be uh, difficulties, there were obstacles, there will be hindrances, there will be adversaries. And in order to emphasize that point, the next thing in that narrative was Peter immediately said, Lord, after Christ had said he was going to go to Jerusalem and that, he said, no, Lord, that will never happen. Not so. 
there immediately he had made the declaration this work he was going to accomplish and Peter says not so and the Lord has to say get you behind me Satan there at that moment when he made that those decisive comments here was the attack trying to entice him to take a road to victory other than that which God had planned for him for the salvation of men and women so we see in this statement there's assurance of ultimate victory and there's also an appreciation that this would not be easy. And again, this is brought out in Nehemiah chapter four. In chapter three, we have advance, advance, and advance. In chapter four, you see attack, attack, attack from the enemies of those who were seeking to do this work for God. Now, I don't know if you've read through this chapter, but as I was reading through it this week, I was struck by the number of times the word said or similar words are recorded in the fourth chapter. It's repeated again and again. Just let me show you a little bit of what I mean. In verse two of chapter four, we have this man, Sambalans. It says, in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, he said. If you look at the third chapter, this is Tobiah, another one of the adversaries, the Ammonite, who was at his side, says he was saying look at, at verse 10 meanwhile the people of judah said the strength of the laborers are giving out verse 11 also our enemies said and then in verse 12 slightly different but really re repeating the same principle then the jews who lived near them that's their adversaries came and told us Ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Can you imagine it? Not once, not five, not five times. Ten times over, they said. Well, that's really taking things a bit far. And then verse 14, we have this wonderful statement concerning Nehemiah. After I'd looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles. And finally, in verse 19, we have it. Then I said to the nobles. So here we have a repetition of things being said. It's almost like a tsunami of words that were coming and hitting the people of God. Wave after wave, wave of words. I don't know about you, but you ever feel that tense? You just feel there's words coming at us day after day, program after program, uh, article after article, words and many of them negative, many of them anti-Christian, and they all seem to consume us. Well, this is a picture of what is happening here. Now, when you look at all these sayings or all these statements, I think they can be really reduced to three voices. There are three voices which are coming out clearly and unmistakably in this particular chapter. And I want us to look at these three voices. And first of all, there is the voice of derision, the voice of contempt and ridicule. What we are told here when Sambalant heard that we were rebuilding all, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, ridiculed them. There he was. He was speaking in derogatory terms. He was doing everything he could to possibly, he possibly could to demoralize them, to discourage them in order that he might stop the work. Sometimes people say, when you hear people saying derogatory things to us or about us or about the church, we sometimes say they are mindless words. I can assure you they're not mindless. 
they're full of purpose. They're minded to do something. It was in order to break the spirit of these people. And you look at the three things which he mentions in this particular passage here. Do you notice? What will those feeble Jews do? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in the day? Can they bring the stones back to life uh, from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up would break down the walls of stone. First of all, he was deriding or speaking in a derising way about their ability. What will these feeble Jews, these weak Jews, these people, what can they possibly do? What are they attempting to do? George MacDonald said, nearly always in any form of ridicule, there will be some element of truth. And that's what makes them acceptable. That's what makes them seem real. That's what means that we take it to heart because there is. And of course, in comparison to the work that they were undertaking, they were a feeble bunch. They weren't all skilled craftsmen, if you read the third chapter. They weren't all people with special abilities to do this task. They weren't outstanding builders known uh, worldwide or anything like that. There was this group of people, eclectic, all sorts. And there was that. But the work of God is independent necessarily or primarily on the workers and their skills. It's dependent on God. Which is reminding folks that we were praying before the service and I was preaching this morning and the opening hymn of that particular service was Guide Me with Thy Great Redeemer or Great Jehovah. And I love that verse. We are weak, but thou art mighty. Holy with your powerful hand. Yes, reality. Who are we? What are we in size? What are we in significance? Do we have any great kudos? Frequently not. Frequently quite the opposite. We are weak. But this is reality. Thou art mighty. Hold us in your powerful hands. There is that element. They were disdaining or speaking disdainfully about their ability. They're speaking disdainfully about their ambitions. You notice how they put it. Uh, will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? And they were pointing to when the wall was finished, the, the people would come and they would bring sacrifices of thanksgiving. And they said, how are you actually thinking there will be a time, a day, a moment when the wall's finished, when you'll be standing up and thanking God for what's been accomplished and what's been achieved? Are you actually saying that that day will ever come? They were just sort of pouring scorn, cold water, rockets of it, baths of it, on their ambitions and their aspirations. And that will always happen when people of God want to put their best foot forward, whether it's individually in some cause or in some situation, or whether it is collectively in forming a church with the idea of other churches being planted. They will all come, do you think? that will ever be accomplished? Do you think that you could even dream of seeing this coming to pass? I remember when the Church of Pelsall, we were first meeting in the school, a very small company, something like a dozen, 14 people. And we started to go around knocking the doors. And I can remember one man, he said, what do you think you're doing? Do you honestly believe you could plant a church in Pelsall? <laughs> We've got your open that school there and hardly anybody knows you even exist. 
I can tell you today, a church was planted, a building was put up, the building's been extended, and there are two pastors in the church. And people from that area, even that person who said to me, is now a deacon in the church. But the devil always come. The poor scorn on our ambition and their aspirations. Will you finish in the day? Can you bring that? And then also the poor scorn in our activities. What are they building? Even a fox climbing up would break down the walls of stone. See, the things you're doing, what do you possibly achieve? <laughs> what on earth do you think that, that that's going to do in terms of, of anything substantial or real? And all our activities, the poor scorn on it. They'll think our, our message is, is out of date, it's past a sell by date. They'd say our methods, they're unrealistic. They couldn't possibly reach people in a day like this with their skepticism, cynicism, and all these other things. And so here is the attack. Speaking with contempt, with the purpose of undermining, demoralizing, so that the work would stop. That's their intention. Now, if that is the attack, what's the antidote? What's the answer? It's one thing to be able to analyze what's happening, and oftentimes we feel that. Well, the first thing is, ask a question. What does the enemy want me to do? What does the enemy want us to do? What would he really love to happen? He would really love for this work to stop. Now, if that's the question, and that's the answer to that question, that's, that's the very thing we shouldn't do. Why cooperate with the enemy? Oh, yes, we might feel hurt and demoralized and so forth, but why cooperate? Stand against it. What did Paul say? He says, stand, and having done all, stand for that, which is true. One of the great battles in the history of Europe was the Battle of Waterloo. Our dear French people aren't so keen in that battle. But there it was Napoleon. He was a great strategist. He really was. And he knew how to conduct a war. And he knew how to exploit weaknesses. And there he had more artillery. And he was going, as it were, to pound the British forces until they gave way. There was one command from Wellington. Stand. 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 And we were with him. And dear friends, that's what we have to ask. What is... What's the purpose of these insults, this ridicule, these derisory comments? It's nothing new. Do you remember when David came to face Goliath? And that Goliath looked down. What do you think I am sending the likes of him, a boy, to face a giant? He thought it was laughable. You could almost see him turning around and say, look at this. <laughs> yes, look at this. David said, I'm not coming to you in my strength. I'm coming in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. And he went forward. And we know the outcome. We need to ask the question. The next thing is, do not take it personally. Do not take it personally. It's so often when people say derogatory things about us, maybe our stand as a Christian in an office, maybe our stand in a school, uh, where all the other children are making taunts and saying things. You're not one of these pretty good people. Go to church. Maybe it's in university. I can remember a young, a young woman, a heartbroken. And because she wouldn't sleep around in university, 
They then started to ascribe to her as lesbian and all these other things. Can you imagine? She was taking a stand and even used that to say foul things in her mind about it. It's hard. But don't take it personally. And neither did Nehemiah. And then what he says, they're insulting you, our God. This is your work. This is your ministry. This is your purpose. Well, they might be directing at me. But it's really, it's directed to you. Well, we must see it in those terms, all of those things. I can remember in Eastern Europe, and Perrin is telling us, the children sent to school, and a child being stood up in front of the class and laughed at as the teacher poked from about what the child believed and her parents believed. Can you imagine what that was for parents to send their child back to school to be an object of laughter and ridicule? A child that wanted to be accepted by their peers and friends. Instead, they're seen as some oddity. Oh, how hard it is. And sometimes it's difficult not to take it personally. But that's the reality. It's the enemy seeking, as it were, to undermine our stand and our purposes in building for God. So we mustn't take it personally. The next thing is, don't respond in kind. Remember our Lord Jesus, when he was reviled, he reviled not against. He didn't do it. Because what happens is we can either be helping a way to resolve the issue or we can add to it. And what our Lord did in that situation, in spite of thinking about it, the holy, sinless Son of God, who was accused of blasphemy against his father. Can you imagine what that felt like? He who loved his father with a heart beyond anything that we can comprehend. To be accused of speaking of his father like that. When he was reviled, he reviled not again, but committed himself to a faithful creator in that situation. And we mustn't do that because it's not personal. But... Having said that, that doesn't mean to say that it won't affect us. And this is the important thing here. When this happened, uh, what did Nehemiah do? Verse 4, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Hear us. Here's the, the, this criticism, the censure, the ridicule. This is, this is these disparaging and derisory remarks. And you know what? It's not easy not to absorb those. It's not easy not to suck it in. But what I want to tell you today is don't be a sucker. Be a seeker for, to the Lord. And when those things come, deflect them. Immediately deflect them heavenwards. Back to God. Hear us. He plays with reality. This is what he does. He says, hear us. We are despised. Turn their insults back against them. This is what he's doing. And if we don't at that moment pray and deflect the, these, these statements, these words, they will, as it were, ultimately start getting into us and get, getting us down and even have the point where we will feel like giving up, deflecting them upwards. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. That was his answer concerning that. It is, what, ask the question, what's the purpose? 
Don't take it personally. Don't respond in time, but rather direct it heavens. Lord, here's for those ones who are speaking to my children like that. You love them as we love them. Please, Lord, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. <laughs> these people who are saying these comments and making these comments, you know, Lord. And that's how Nehemiah seeks uh, to, to deal with this particular situation. That's the first voice, the voice of derision. And then the next uh, voice which we have here, and the second voice, is the voice of despair and despondency. Look at verse uh, 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much trouble that we cannot uh, rebuild the wall. Now, it's interesting the timing when this happens. Just previously, they'd done half the wall. They'd reached 50% of the way. I don't know if you've ever done any running. Uh, I, uh, I did a little bit of running when I was young, a few years ago. I don't know why you're smiling. <laughs> but in a long distance race, at the beginning, you start with a flush of enthusiasm. Everybody's going. But you know when you maybe with six miles, when you get to about three or four miles, that early enthusiasm has gone a bit. And not only that, you're beginning to hurt. And yet you can't see the end. You can't see the finishing line. You're in that sort of limbo things where it's just hard work. Where it's hard work. And where you're getting tired and yet you can't see the finish. You can't see the completion. That's the situation. And at that point, then we're very susceptible uh, to our feelings and other things. And it was at that particular uh, time. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. You know, it was amazing. It was Judah. Judah was the biggest tribe. Judah was the, were the people who led into the promised land. They were the first one to face the battle. Judah. And just shows us how any of us, each of us, are susceptible. It doesn't matter what we have known in the past. It doesn't matter what we've achieved in the past. We can get into this state. We can somehow or other just feel it's too much, far too much. Hebrews speaks about those who are running the race. And it says, those who are feeble arms and weak knees, or weak arms and feeble knees. Can you picture that arms hanging down and dragging their feet? These are people of God. And we can get into that particular state. And it's so important that when tiredness comes, we're especially susceptible when tiredness comes. Because oftentimes, tired bodies can lead to tired minds. Tired bodies can lead to tired minds. It happens. I don't know if you ever played rugby. Uh, if you've played rugby at all, you'll oftentimes find near the end of the game, people will make mistakes that they wouldn't have made at the beginning. Why is that? Physically, they're spent. And they haven't the, the physical energy, even mentally, to keep their focus on what they're supposed to be doing, why they're doing this. They just lose it because, in a sense, of uh, the tiredness of the body. And we ought to remember that very often when we are physically tired, we can lose our spiritual focus. 
Do you notice something here? There's no reference, as it were, to the our father built. You know, there's, there's nothing said about God's help. It's all negative. There's so much rubbish. And our strength is gone and we can't build. We can't build. And that's the state that these particular people were in. And very often you see what happens when we're physically tired. Our vision gets distorted. Our thinking gets distorted. Uh, and you will see negativity more and more. Do you remember the great man Elijah and how God had used him and how he had proved God in all sorts of situations? And Elijah is exhausted. And what he says, I only, I am left. He knew that wasn't true. He already knew that there had been hundreds who had been looked after. Looked after. But he, at that time, he couldn't see that. He could just see how he was and how he's feeling. Uh, a little word here. We need to look after and look out for one another when we're tired. And we need to be careful how we speak when we're tired. Because it doesn't oftentimes reflect reality. Sometimes when I was lecturing in pastoral theology, I would say to the students, now, a good pastor or a good person who's pastoring another person is a good listener. And I said, first of all, listen carefully to what the people are saying. And they all agreed. I said, listen carefully to what they're not saying. I said, what do you mean? Listen to see if they mention anything about the Lord. Listen to see if they say anything about God's help. Listen to see if they mention anything of the purposes of God or the promises of God. And if those things are missing, then fundamentally you find a person who has become despondent and demoralized to a certain degree. We could develop this greatly. You know, what did Judah think? If you're building, have you ever did any building, particularly when it's rebuilding, not have rubbish? Who would ever think of not having rubbish? It comes with the job, rubbish. How on earth did they think that there wouldn't be rubbish? especially after what had been done by the Babylonians. They'd burnt the gates. They destroyed the walls. They'd left heaps of rubble. And then also they were working. And what happens when you do work? You make rubbish. I have a friend who's a builder, and he said on his site, he has two people every day, and their only job is to get rid of rubbish. And you know, there is that rubbish in the Christian life. There's rubbish because of what the enemy has done. Even though we come to Christ, we still bring rubbish and baggage with us. And that can get away and get in the way of Christian work. Even though we're converted and the Holy Spirit has done a supernatural work in it, there's still much of self and selfishness. I'll tell you, that is a real pile of rubbish within the church. Self-pity, because sometimes we think we've been ignored or overlooked. And we let that just build up in our hearts and minds, that rubbish. Look at the way they're treating me. Look how I've been ignored. Self-consciousness. I couldn't possibly pray because people might not think my prayers are very good or very nice. 
worried about what people will think about us rather than thinking about what we're doing. We're communing with the creator. We're fellowshipping with the master and maker of the whole cosmos. We're knowing and expressing our relationship with God as our heavenly father. And we're worried about what other people think about our prayers. Self-consciousness. We can just keep going on with all these things. And that's because of what the, the legacy of what the enemy has done. And we bring that with us and we have to recognize there will be rubbish that has to be dealt with. And then there's rubbish that accumulates because of what we do and what we're doing. Uh, sometimes, well, I don't know about you, maybe here's Wayne and Wayne has a need and I think, well, oh, that'll help Wayne. Uh, and there I come and bring something for Wayne, a nice box of something or, or uh, a nice check, no hope. <laughs> and I wrote, and Wayne doesn't say thank you. I'm never going to do anything for Wayne again. He never said thank you. It's not the old self coming up. More concerned about adulation and gratitude. Now I'm not saying I'm, I'm saying we should be grateful for other people help us. But we are to do our good works that our heavenly Father would be glorified, not that we should be praised. The rubbish that comes up the negativity that can enter into our hearts and minds. And at that moment, we're very susceptible. Look what we find just afterwards. Uh, also, our enemies said, and then the Jews came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will be attacked. Why would they say it 10 times? If they had said it once, we could have said they're being principled and they're advising us about difficulties along the horizon. But to come and say it again, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. In the Second World War, there were posters, careless talk, cost lives. And sometimes we don't realize the way we speak about the work of God, the things associated with it, we can actually demoralize one another, discourage one another, deflect one another from the task because of the way this was spoken. I had to challenge myself, how do I speak about the work of God to my fellow believers and to people outside the church? Are my comments generally critical, demeaning, or are they uplifting and encouraging at the same time being realistic? We're not perfect. And here's the situation. And Nehemiah, what does he do? He, he carefully listens and he looks and he takes in the situation and he prescribed means whereby they can be encouraged and the problems they can they had can can be helped. I, I just mentioned that quick, quickly. You might think of solutions for that. And then finally, the last verse or the last voice. We had the voice of derision, the voice of despondency, and the voice now of dependence. And this is Nehemiah. And notice how the language in which it is, is couched, where he speaks about verse 14, after I looked over things. This wasn't just speaking off the top of his head. This wasn't just trying to find a sound bite that somehow would help. He looked, he studied, he analyzed, he he it's two parts. 
Do not be afraid of them. But then he tells us how that is. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. It doesn't mean to say just remember there's a God. It's, it's not like that. It means never forget the Lord. It means have the thought of the Lord always before you. Have it always there. That's what you have to do. You know, God remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. In other words, everything that God does, everything that he plans, all the things that he purposes, he has that thought in his mind. And therefore, everything we do, each thing we face, every circumstance in which we find ourselves, remember the Lord's. A.W. Tozer was definitely right. When he said the key to life is theological. In other words, God is the key to our life. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, he knows he's going to die soon. He talks about the hour of his departure at hand. He's going to be executed. Here's this great champion of the truth. It's going to be removed from the scene of time. No, he does. He says to Timothy, I'm passing the torch on to you. Can you imagine how Timothy thought, I'm not a Paul, I'm not made of that stuff. And he says to Timothy, you're to preach the gospel, whether it's welcome or unwelcome, acceptable or unacceptable. You're to do it. You're to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Things are bad at the moment, but they're going to get worse, I can tell you. It might even come to the point where you have to sacrifice your life for the sake of the gospel. He tells them that. How would Timothy feel? Tell me, how would you feel? How would I feel? Oh, well, what's the antidote to that? How, how do you answer a person in that, that position? This is what Paul says. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The one who was dead and died for our sins. And who is alive and alive forevermore. He's the risen Christ, the living Christ who vanquished death, conquered it, not only for his sake, but for our sake. Remember that, never forget it, Timothy. For whatever the circumstances, remember the victorious Jesus Christ. And that's, I believe, how we can stand and how we can face uh, these particular uh, situations. And you find that right across through the scriptures. In Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, and the psalmist says, I have set the Lord ever before me, always in my thoughts. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be moved. That wonderful Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances, all is found in him. That doesn't mean to say it's easy, but it, it enables us to be effective and to carry on. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27. Sometimes the future can seem dark. He's our light. Sometimes if we even see what it holds and it can be foreboding, he's our strength. Whom shall I fear? 
do these wonderful things. I remember visiting an elderly lady, quite frail and weak, but strong in faith. And I was praying with her, and I used Psalm 121 as a focus for the prayer. You know, I to the hills will lift mine eyes. From whence comes my help? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And I included it in the prayer, and suddenly I felt a sharp pain in my side. I don't know, I thought it was a thorn in the flesh from the devil, but it wasn't, it was this lady's elbow. And she actually elbowed me in the middle of the prayer. And I said, what are you doing? She said, some help. My help comes from our Lord, who made heaven and earth. Remember the Lord. Not just that he exists, but of his being. He's awesome. He's great. What a thing to think. The awesome, great one has called us into his service. He's called us to be his people, to live for him. And he, what he's, what he has done, he has committed himself to us, to you and to me. Can you imagine that? An unfailing, unequivocal, unreserved commitment. This God is our God forever and ever. In times of adversity, I have a few favorite hymns. If I might um, uh, read, them, read them to you. And it says, Why should I fear the darkest dawn or tremble at the tempter's power? Jesus has placed to be my tower. Though hot the fight, why quit the field? Why must I either fly or yield? Since Jesus is my mighty shield. Though faint my prayers and cold my love, my steadfast hope shall not remove. While Jesus intercedes above. Against me earth and hell combine, but on my side is part of I. Jesus is all, and Jesus is mine. So writes John so has some the people of God. We are to anticipate adversity. Not a persecution complex, but anticipate adversity and difficulty and so forth. But we're also to expect victory. We're also to expect victory in that. But there will be very voices trying, as it were, to fill our minds with negative desponding thoughts. The question is, which voice are we listening to? The derisory voice, the critical voice, the despondent voice, or the voice of those dependent on God. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. I'll ask you just to think of those words today and tomorrow. Each day, remember the Lord. Remember God. Great and awesome. That's how we face the atmosphere. Amen.